Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today, it's my honor and thrill to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Angela Aliotto. Angela is a legal and political lioness. She's inspired by her family's political legacy. She continues to work on behalf of San Francisco and California citizens, and really citizens in our entire country, in her multiple roles, including and long after serving on San Francisco's Board of Supervisors as a California superdelegate and as an attorney, she has faced off against big tobacco to enact strict no-smoking guidelines, has focused on protecting neighborhood health care, created a comprehensive plan to reduce homelessness, and advocated for AIDS education. She's co-sponsored plans to assist minority businesses and protect our environment. Concerned with social justice, poverty, health, and the environment, this daughter of former San Francisco Mayor Joe Aliotto has created her own name in the political and activist world. Her memoir, Straight to the Heart, covers her eight years in San Francisco politics and is appropriately based on Dante's Inferno. (laughs) Angela (laughs) Aliotto, thank you so much for coming to the Morning Glory Project. I'm honored that you would be here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Real pleasure. And I'm doubly honored because as we record this, you've recently, because of California fires, had to evacuate your home, horses and all kinds of things and are coming back and you're working under duress. So double thank you. For, well, thank for you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like uh, the pioneering days. You kind of, this is the fourth time we've been evacuated in the last three weeks, month. And, and you, it's kind of become rote, but it certainly, um, is not something I'm going to do next year. I'm just not going to be here for fire season. It's poor California, poor, oh. poor California. It's devastating what's happening here. I know. I just uh, picked up our horses over at a gorgeous uh, ranch that's a vineyard, mm-hmm. and all of the grapes are on the floor because oh. they they have to pick them so that the plants go dormant. But all of the grapes are on the floor uh, because they're soiled by smoke and there's some kind of poisonous um, ingredient in the smoke. So they leave them there for, you know, wildlife to eat because it's not enough for wildlife, but it is enough for to ruin the wine. So there'll uh, be no 2020 Cabernet. You know, and I have to say, you know, this this podcast, the reason I have it is because I I know that learning from what somebody has gone through helps us get through what we have to get through. It seems like we're all going through stuff in in a simultaneous way these days between the political climate, the civil rights climate, and certainly the COVID climate. And now in California and other parts of the West, the 
the fire season. Fires, so- tornadoes, floods. I mean, what's happening to America in the middle of a pandemic that already has people emotionally distressed to the hilt. I mean, really, we didn't need anything added to COVID. COVID is distressing enough. I know. Um, it's just, it's really been quite an amazing year, never to be forgotten. No, that is certainly true. And let, let's hope it stands out as unique. So Angela, you've been a warrior for a long time <laughs> and you, you haven't been afraid to go against, for lack of a better term, the big guys. How do you, when you face off against big tobacco, anti-environmentalist, anti-civil rights, how, what do you do to prepare for those fights? How do you do that? You know, Betsy, I, I don't want to sound like a nut, but it's literally innate. I cannot stand to see the underdog picked on. I can't stand it. It's, it's something in me that just uh, uh, infuriates me to, to a point where I mean, I mean, I'm just immediately impassioned to, I don't want to say beat up on them, but that's what I do. That's, that's what I do. I am through legal uh, means, you know, I'm a tough cookie and uh, you want to beat up on my client. I'm going to beat up on you and you'll end up saying good morning judge for a very long time and it never Mm. fails, but Mm. just, you know, I have a real thing about people of power taking advantage of those who are having a more difficult time in life. And as such, um, I just go to bat. I don't think about it. I don't, you know, I took a Tony Robbins course once and it made me laugh because he was teaching his, um, his, uh, uh, his clients, his, uh, the group there to, you know, go in the bathroom and get all revved up and then go out there and let them have it. Well, I kind of live in that state. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm fighting something, I live, I, it's amazing. I can transform immediately from, you know, reading, uh, whether it's literature, the Italian Renaissance, things I love, art history, things I love. I can go immediately from that into screaming at a CEO um, in an email or on a telephone call. And I don't, um, it's just natural. Well, you know, Angela, it seems that you and I have something in common in that in my past life and current life, I've also been a therapist and an author and an educator. And I've come to believe something after sitting with a lot of people who've been victims of one kind of horrendous abuse or another. And I've come to believe that about 90% of the world's ills come down to abuse of power. You know, when some, when it's, whether it's a parent to a child or a boss to an employee yes, or yeah. a president to his cabinet or yes. a priest to his parishioners, whatever, whenever somebody is granted power and abuses it, bad things happen. And it seems that you have constructed your whole career about going after those who abuse the power that they're given. That's an excellent, excellent uh, statement. I think that's absolutely true. I don't think you can find a place where someone who is being abused, where someone else isn't abusing the power they had to be able to abuse that person Mm -hmm. in the first place. Uh, That's an excellent concept. I'm going to have to think a lot about that, Betsy. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's particularly poignant when that power is also comes with trust of a vulnerable person. The that, worst. That, in fact, even as I as honestly, without any hyperbole at all, saying that and talking to you about this, I just got those kind of goosebumpy shivers on my arms because it makes me so angry. 
Right. It makes me so angry that someone would violate a vulnerable person when they've been granted trust or, and I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand how, I mean, I do intellectually, I have a degree, I've got a master's degree, all that stuff. Intellectually, I can explain it, but on a human level, when you encounter somebody who is ruthlessly abusing power against the, a vulnerable group or a vulnerable person, what, I know that you channel that into your legal activity and your pursuit of them, but when you're sitting in the room with them, how do you, how do you even find your voice? That, that is, uh, well, how do, no. In my situation, it's how do I stop my voice? <laughs> it literally is how do I control myself? Mm. Uh, because first of all, as I tell my clients, um, and I'm giving you a, a little inside uh, info on my, uh, the way I run my cases, when I, as I tell my clients, don't be alarmed if I look like um, I like this person. If I look like I'm being really friendly with this racist or this bigot, don't be alarmed because what I'm doing is having them think they can tell me anything. And Betsy, they do. They do. Mm. And then it's when they do that I get like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? I mean, people in the room all of a sudden start sitting back in their seats because I really, I don't want to just nail the guy in this lawsuit. I want to get in his mind and understand why in the world would he do that to this person who has done nothing to him? Why would you do that? And it's just like so infuriating to me. And you know, the other lawyers in the room, they're going, oh, it's Angela being Angela, but you get your best testimony because when you're proving discrimination, which is what I've done now for 25 years, you have to get into the head of the discriminator and you have to understand his uh, mental status, his mens rea, his criminal intent, his racial animus, okay? And to do that, you've got to know why they did it from their heart, you know, for example, when you, when you figure out why they did it from their heart, why is that an advantage to you? Well, in a hangman's news case, doctors on the stand, he was putting hangman's nooses around the the African-American nurses computer. Mm. Okay. When I got into this guy, why did you do this? Why would you do that? Of course they're denying they're doing it. And so they would say something like, which this guy did say on the stand, Well, if I did something like that, it would be because my dad taught me how to, I was born in Mississippi and my dad taught me how to make hangman's nooses while I was sitting on the porch of our house. Wow. Okay. I go, and how did your dad teach you that? And I hand him a rope and I said, can you make one for me? (laughs) And he Mm. makes it in two seconds because his dad taught him to do it. Which is tragic. Innate. It's innate that he would have racial animus. So where do you think you got this fortitude? I don't know because, well, my father was extremely strong, um, but they did antitrust law. I I don't have the patience my father and my brothers have. I just don't have that kind of patience. Their cases, they would have trials that went on for two years. I couldn't imagine that. When I was president of the Board of Supervisors, I did all of the MBE-LBE legislation for the minority businesses, the women businesses, And um, in that, you see the inequity in the giving out of contracts from the city. So 
we created legislation that would be a certain percentage of the contracts had to go to minorities or had to go to women um, to try to equalize the terribly unequal amount of contracts going to 99% um, white people. So in writing that legislation, I was shocked with the inequities, shocked with the inequities. Then doing all the homeless work I did, the amount of inequity and homelessness is stunning. And as such, when I left City Hall, I didn't know what I was gonna do. It was a rainy day. I had a little law office on Sacramento. My dad was dying. Uh, and uh, I just didn't know what to do in this, in which kind of law. Cause I had majored in law school in, um, in antitrust law, like my brothers and my father. So this African-American kid comes in from, uh, he worked for Wonder Bread. And uh, uh, he came in and uh, he told me that this is what they were doing to him at Wonder Bread, better known as IBC from Kansas City. He came in and I said to him, well, let me tell you something, Theo, if they're doing that to you, if that's happening to you by management, if they're treating you that way, uh, because you're black by management, then every other black person in this particular uh, location of Wonder Bread in San Francisco on Folsom Street would be being treated that way also. So his next visit, he came in with 23 African-American men that work at Wonder Bread on the Folsom Street, either making Twinkies, making the donuts, driving the route car or driving the Big Macs. So we had four categories of um, uh, clients who were being discriminated based on their skin. So it took me two years and I'm so sorry my dad missed this verdict. He missed it by a year. I, I mean, mm. he would never have believed it because I'd been in city hall not practicing law, uh, even though I got my degree in 87. So when I left in 97, I went into my little law firm. And again, dad was sick at this time. So I took the case and on August 2nd of 2001, the jury came back in. So I'd only been in practice two years. Jury came back in with the largest civil rights verdict in the history of the civil rights movement, $134.5 million verdict cut up by the individual uh, plaintiffs. Congratulations. So, Bravo. Yeah. It was, well, I, I was shocked. I was shocked, you know, and um, I'm a very religious person. So a lot of it had to do, I'm a Franciscan and I've been Franciscan since I was 15 years old, which is uh, the third order of St. Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. And um, so many of the things I do even today in my lawsuits, and I, I don't hesitate at all to say this. And even in all the legislation I wrote were based on uh, St. Francis's tenants of take care of the environment, take care of the sick and the poor, healthcare, no war, right? Pacifism, and of course, all creatures in this world. So those four tenants uh, are prominent in every one of my lawsuits. Well, so that in a way you've, you've rounded around to where you get this strength is it sounds like your faith and that modeling, in addition to your upbringing from your right. very political family, instilled on that and then whatever personality and and tenacity you just have wired into yourself yeah it's i think that kind i think of that's very true so not every single one of these fights has been a success i know that you you ran for mayor a couple of times and that didn't quite work out and i'm sure that there have been cases that didn't quite go your way. I'm wondering how you deal with that when, when there's a disappointment or a failure or something that doesn't work out. How, what, what do you do with that? Well, 
I have to tell you that I don't believe I've ever been wrong, okay? In my cases, I do not believe I've ever been wrong. I do not You've been on the right side of the argument? I've been on the right side. There was nothing funky about my case. There was no dishonesty by the plaintiff. There was no, the facts were there. The facts were true, you know, and I love juries. And that's sometimes a little bit of a problem. For example, last November, I had a very large case in Oakland, California. I represented nine African-American men against the largest shipping company in the United States, the Marine people. My guys were longshoremen. And it was finding hangman's nooses. There were three or four hangman's nooses. Again, with the nooses. Oh yeah, a lot of nooses. A lot of nooses in my case and a lot of the N-word in my case, my cases, especially the Wonder Bread case. Uh, But in this case last uh, uh, November, literally a year ago right now, I lost it nine to three, nine to three. Three of the jurors uh, went with us. Nine of them went against us. You need nine to three to win. So the defendants won, okay? Outrageous discrimination in this case. Just proved it, you know, the head of the shipping company, I kept his testimony. He got on the stand and he said, this is nonsense. These black guys are used to seeing Heyman's nooses and the N-word being used. They just get used to it. You don't know what you're doing. This is fine. This is how we work. Okay. I had direct evidence of racial animus, direct evidence. How do you lose that? You lose that with a Trump jury, literally. And Trump was in this case because they had a celebration of his victory in 2016 with Confederate flags. So the Confederate flags were part of, uh, and the Trump victory celebration was part of the trial itself. And, you know, the judge warned me before. He said, you know, Ms. Aliotto, you never know uh, the politics of people. And I said, yes, I'm, I'm aware of that, Your Honor. He says, you know, it's a difficult one because you've got, you know, a president in the middle of it. And he was right. But in Mm -hmm. Oakland, California, number one, out of 157 prospective jurors, 157 prospective jurors, only one was black in Oakland. Wow. In Oakland. How does that happen? That happens all the time to me. That happens all the time to me. Do you mean even just the jury pool? The jury, the bigger jury pool. I never had any African-Americans on the jury. Wow. That's I, I had one African-American me. on the jury in Wonder Bread. So, Angela, that, that leads me to, to the, the other question, which is sort of the, the reason I'm having you have this conversation with me today, which is that you and I are recording this on October 16th, 2020. And it will air on November 4th. Oh, okay. Twenty. So we don't know the outcome of the upcoming election. We won't know it before we finish this conversation. And when this airs, it'll be, I don't know that we'll know it then, but it'll be in the can then. And I'm wondering about just your thoughts about the upcoming election and your hopes, your fears, your optimism, your pessimism. Just kind of where are you about that? Because it seems as though whether it is the president himself or just the kind of person that he has empowered and emboldened during this time, that's been your foe forever. It seems like you're fighting 
what you've always been fighting in this political. My, my biggest worry with this guy is is all these all these uh, federal judge appointments. I love Obama, knew Obama, been a Democrat my whole life. You know, been chair of the Democratic Party. I ran California for Jerry Brown's campaign in '92. Um, I am a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, um, but I just, I, I just don't understand a couple of things that have happened in this campaign that has helped this person who is creating a dynasty of um, Republican judges. I don't understand why Obama left so many empty. I had no idea. Why were they empty? You know, I, I was I was recently reading that that was because they all he nominated them, but they all got stopped in the Senate. They, they, they wouldn't didn't even hear them. But that that's like, uh, you know, that's hard to believe that for eight years they all got stopped in the Senate. It's just like uh, then we were fighting the wrong fight. Because believe me, Betsy, these judges are so much more important than almost anything else. Because the bottom line, the case ends up on their table, and no matter what the legislators it, write. And it's also a, a generation of judges. It's not even just a, a season. Well, how about a forty-seven-year-old Supreme Court justice? Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, I that just stuns me. But Joe Biden is a friend, and of course Kamala is a very close friend. Uh, Joe Biden's a very close friend of my brother Joe's, uh, and Kamala and I have the same birthday next Tuesday. Ah, well, we're happy birthday so. to you both, and let's let's hope that that uh, on November fourth you get a big celebration of right. Oh, please, be, please, absolutely, that would be lovely. Well. Angela, I'm wondering, you know, when when the cases don't go your way, how you pick yourself up and go get ready for the next one? I think well, I think it's like what I said to you before is um, I know I'm fighting the good fight. If I had a client who lied on the stand, who was a jerk, I had that happen once um, and I felt that we deserved what we got. But that happened once. Uh, and that's when my client called opposing counsel some nasty names from the stand. Oof. And you can imagine it. I'm sitting there like, I cannot believe the last two years of my life <laughs> depended on this five minute testimony. At any rate, um, how do I feel? I was shocked last November when we lost the one in Oakland. I'm not used to, I have to admit, I'm not used to losing. God is very good to me. I'm not used to losing. It took me a little bit, but I couldn't uh, wait to get my next uh, trial up and ready and running to win. So it's sort of just pick yourself up, go find the, find the next good fight. Listen, all my children are healthy. All five of my grandchildren are healthy. You know, I'm not going to complain about losing a trial. I'm going to keep fighting the fight. It's, it's you know, I'm an incredibly fortunate person. Mm. And what is the, the fight that you're fighting right now? I know that you're working on a really big civil this rights This is uh, 18 African-American women against the city and county of San Francisco. Now, the interesting, very interesting part of this is that for 25 years of my legal career, I have never sued the city. I sued the city once for a little boy that got shot by a police officer when they were shooting at his dog. The bullet ricocheted and went through his knee. Uh, that's the only case I've ever taken against the city itself. And I have been offered thousands, but I don't sue the city. I don't sue the church. I don't sue specific places. I just don't, you know, um, 
the the underlying thought there, because I really debated this with myself, was that I guess I've always hoped they'd do the right thing. And as we have seen, they don't. So I ran for mayor in 2018. The amount of discrimination and cutthroat actions that occurred in that mayor's race was mind-boggling to me because I had been out of the city scene since I did the homeless plan that ended in 2004. Well, actually, Gavin and I worked with it till I left in 2011. So um, it just seemed to me to be so amazing um, that there was so much discrimination in the contracting, in the work jobs, in the failure to promote, in the failure to have the ability to be eligible for the eligibility class. If you don't have the eligibility class, you can't be promoted. So it's like Martin Luther King says in his letter to the Birmingham jails, you know, someday my son. Well, those eligibility tests are someday my son and that day never comes. It never comes because they block you with tests. So. Then I was also on the DCCC, and this group of people came in, uh, African-American women complaining about the uh, racism in the workplace. And of course, that's what I do for a living, right? So, but not against the city. So they got up and this one woman gets up and says, she says, the head of HR, uh, Mickey Callahan, wrote a letter saying that the word, I'm gonna say the word, so don't be offended. The word nigger is, not a hostile work environment by itself. Okay, that's totally contrary to the law. Totally contrary to the law. So Betsy, there goes that that passion I told you about. I stood up and in front of the entire DCCC, and there's a lot of press on this that I hate, okay? And I gave all the examples of the word nigger being used in my case, in my cases. And people were shocked. Even the African-American women testifying asked me to stop, okay? That's how powerful that word is. If you're looking at a jury and you say to a jury, you know, they called my client the N-word 10 times. That isn't gonna make anybody upset at all. If you look at the jury and you say, you know, they called my client nigger 10 times. Blood starts boiling. You cannot sugarcoat a bad word because my client didn't hear a sugar-coated word. My client heard the true word that went right to their heart and their mind and diminished their status in life immediately in front of that superior who called them that name. Hmm. Okay? Words have power. Ooh, absolutely. And you can't minimize them. You know, and I got in a lot of trouble. There was a lot of press over so me. So you got scolded for for saying the word? Oh, yes. It's all over the Internet, and it's ridiculous. As if you're articulating the word in defense of these people is more obscene than the people saying it to harm them. That makes my mind go cuckoo. Your mind. I bet yours too. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there as a member of the DCCC. That's an elected office. I came in number one in the city uh, for the DCCC and hadn't run for office in, in at that point, uh, 2003 to 2016. So it'd been over 13 years that I had not run for office and I came in number one. I'm sitting there and my colleagues are crucifying me and the audience is yelling and screaming, I have PTSD, don't talk like that. Okay, yeah, the people testifying, except for the lady who said it. 
she understood it. She understood. And she wasn't going to say the N word. She was going to say the real word. So here we are, lo and behold, a year later, after I told them on the DCCC, you guys are doing nothing. Stop creating committees to help Black people, okay? Help Black people. Stop creating a committee to help Black people. We know how to help Black people. Do it. Write the legislation. Make it equal pay. Make it an opportunity to get into the eligibility class. Insist they're given the opportunity, okay? Because one of my clients in this case we're filing this week has been there 42 years and denied the eligibility class to get the promotion 12 times. What is she supposed to do? Okay, in other words, she's very good at her job, perfect performance reviews. So let me tell you the very interesting part of this story. All the women that were there that night at the DCCC in June of 2019 are my clients. Wow. They all came back to me. So you, you have this Trojan horse kind of quality, Angela. You know, you, you're a good, good Catholic girl and you know how to be polite and you know how to kind of gentle people in and then, then the fist comes out, right? It's, yeah. It's really impressive. Let, let me ask you one sort of last question. Because this era that we're living in has just been so hard between, again, the political climate, the civil rights abuses, the environmental crisis, the fire season, the, all of the COVID, all of it. How do you replenish yourself? How do you feed your soul? Well, I'll tell you. We bought this little ranch in 2016. And your ranch is where? In Sonoma, right okay. in the heart of the fire. We got burnt out in 2017. So we had it a year. Wow. Uh, I bought I bought my horse. I waited twenty. I waited forty four years to buy him. He's a gorgeous Arabian Omel Salman, and he. Uh, I waited forty four years to buy him. I used to be in rodeos when I was a kid, but my dad made me stop being doing the rodeos and everything because the men at the stables had tattoos. <laughs> now you tell me what kind of logic that was in nineteen sixty six. At any rate, and then my horse died in nineteen sixty eight. So. Uh, I waited since 68 to 2016 to buy a Salman and he's like my best friend. He get, you know, he's my therapist. My therapist lives in the barn, no question about it. And um, he's just gorgeous. He even does gardening with me and he's this wild Arabian. So I get a lot of solace there. I'll tell you where I've really suffered a lot, even though I sound very uh, spoiled, but there's no question that I have been a spoiled brat throughout my life being raised with six brothers, my dad totally, I was the light of his life and uh, he totally spoiled me. I absolutely don't deny that. I mean, of course, but I live in Italy every summer. In 1973, I bought the home. I had three and a half children. I had my first at 19 and by 24 years old, I had four children. I thought I was gonna lose my mind. It was great, I'm a fantastic mother, but that little house in Italy saved my mind. And that was before I went to law school. I didn't go to law school until I was 30 because my Italian husband didn't believe women should go to law school. So I didn't go until I decided enough's enough. I need to be a lawyer. I can't be doing this anymore. The kids are in school all day. So I went back to law school. Thank God. Thank God. True gift from God, that one. So 
the bottom line um, is knowing that I cannot get on a plane and go to my little sanctuary. It's uh-huh. the weirdest feeling in my entire life would I have believed, and I'm an Italian citizen, would I have believed that I couldn't get on my plane to go to my little garden in my house on the Roman beach of Frigene, which is uh, the beaches of the Caesars that I've had since I was 23, has been absolutely heartbreaking. Sounds, well, I, sounds I think- silly. But that's why well, I live. No, it do, it doesn't sound silly at all. And and you know you call yourself spoiled and certainly privileged and all of those things. So, but I think that at whatever level our income and luxury levels, a lot of us are being denied access to the things that usually replenish us to right. be able to cut you know cuddle with our friends and and embrace them and laugh and share company with each other to to do those to go on walks with people without a mask over your face you know that we need to do now of course to be able to go to the movies and sit in the movie theater and escape for two hours or to right. be able to travel or those kinds of things. So while the, the description of an Arabian horse and, a, and an Italian cottage are, sound luxurious for you, those were your replenishing things. Oh, and, absolutely. And I'm, I'm absolutely. glad that you still have access to the horse for that, despite the fires and all of that. So I'm so honored that you would take this time today in the middle of all that you've been through to have this conversation and I'm grateful to get to know you. And I hope sincerely that we'll be able to share a cup of coffee at some point. Absolutely. I would love it. Love it. This has Thank been you. a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much. Thank you for being part of the morning glory project. Absolutely. My pleasure. My conversation with Angela Aliodo today really woke me up in lots of ways. It just kind of sparked me up. I mean, this is a woman who is a lioness. She's been a warrior on behalf of what she calls the underdog for a very long time. And that in and of itself is inspiring enough. But Angela inspired me in a lot of other ways too. And a couple that I want to bring up as extra blooms from that conversation. One is that Angela kept using the word shock and stunned when she was describing how she was reacting to abuse of power and cruelty and ugly things that have been going on. And you would think after growing up in a political family, (laughs) after spending as much time in courtrooms against formidable foes as she has, that nothing could shock her anymore. And I've been thinking about shock, what we've been experiencing over the last four or five years in the United States has been shocking over and over and over again. A lot of us stand stunned at what we're witnessing. The bigotry, the racism, the homophobia, the misogyny, the classism, the lack of patriotism, the ugliness, the vitriol, the cruelty. It's all shocking. And even though It's going on and on and on. I don't ever want to not be shocked by that. I want aberrant behavior like that to always be shocking, but it can no longer be surprising. Now we've seen how many people will follow along with that. We've seen, and this is not about political party. This is not even about one person. Although the current president has certainly embodied that. So I want to stay shocked but I no longer can afford to be surprised at how low people will go and how vast 
the impact there is on the people that fall victim to when someone in power abuses that power. I was also really moved in the conversation that I had with Angela about the power of words, the words that we choose and how to use them, when to use them, where to use them makes a difference. And we may have polite euphemisms for ugly words, but it doesn't change the ugly. I don't want to use words to harm anybody, but when we need to use them to wake ourselves up, we need to use them. So I was grateful for her to that. And I was also lastly touched by the fact that Angela describes herself as spoiled, <laughs> which is a charming way to describe herself. She grew up in a family of privilege and enjoys that. No crime there. But that with her privilege, rather than using it to get more, gain more, and harm people, she's used her position of privilege as a tool to help folks that have less privilege than she. And in fact, it maddens her when someone abuses power against folks and makes them into victims. That's inspiring. It's not the privileged that we should be angry at. It's the privileged that abuse their privilege. There, that's a whole bouquet of extra blooms for today. Now, we recorded this podcast on October 16th, 2016. No, not 2016. There, there. Hello, Sigmund Freud. That was a little bit of a slip. On October 16th, 2020, I think that was a little bit of my own PTSD coming out there. We're recording it now, not knowing what the outcome of this election will be. While people stand in line to vote, to register their voices, we record this not knowing how it's going to turn out. So I'm hoping that when this plays on November the 4th, that we have hope, that we can return to decency, that we can once again embrace our flawed and broken country and help her to heal, to become closer and closer to that more perfect union, flawed and broken as she may be. Thank you for listening to The Morning Glory Project. It's my honor to share it with you, and I'm happy to have you listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast or any other, give us a like, share out an episode, <laughs> write a review. It sure helps. And between now and the next time we talk, I hope that you can find a way to go out and bloom. <laughs>